Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Did anybody see anything or have anything that you have from worship that you wanted to share? I do. I'm holding the mic. Hey, I'm like, where did that come from? I am not sure what to say. I feel so shaky that um, I just, I, my desire is that as we're praying, we're growing in prayer together and we're praying in the mornings together and we're giving our whole hearts and surrender to worship that everyone is really experiencing the Lord. Because mm-hmm. I am really starting to feel more of the Father in this place. And so I hope and my prayer is that everyone is really sensing that God is really doing something among us, that I feel so alive in worship and prayer because I know that he's orchestrating it, he's on it, his desire is for it, he's connecting us through it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so thankful for you guys and all that God is doing in our midst. We don't really see all of it, you know, we just see in part, but I can sense it and feel it and I'm so excited and thankful for it. Amen. Yeah, when you were praying over the kids about experiencing and knowing the Father, I was like, man, I want that prayer for all of us. You know, it's like, can we all get under the tallit here? <laughs> and uh, actually, it's funny, we, Diego joked, he said, we need a bigger tallit, you know, for, for all the kids. It's like we're overflowing. We need a bigger sanctuary to hold them all. So. I was going to just say that during, during the worship time, I, I got a just a glimpse of uh, uh, the throne room of God, which I really don't ever, it's interesting as we talk about going to the throne room of God, but I've never seen anything before. I've never personally had something that just was very vivid. And, um, you know, as I was approaching the father and seeing the son in his right hand, there was tears in the father's eyes. And um, just realizing, you know, cause it's, I don't know how many people I run into that have a view of God as this tyrant, as this unforgiving, um, just really harsh father. I run into people like that all the time, you know, that have a hard time going back to church and, you know, things like that. And I've ran across that for many years. And it's hard for them, I think, to grasp a loving father. And I think sometimes it's because of the things we've had in our own life, you know, that mm-hmm. taint our view. But anyway, I just saw him there. And, and one of the things that he, that it reminded me of is I'm in a place that um, in my current situation, I know I'm surrounded by people that want restoration, but they want it the right way. There's truth in this place. Mm-hmm. People want reconciliation and restoration and relationships and things to be right, but they want them to truly be right. Mm. Not the facade, not the pseudo, but truly forgiveness, reconciliation, and it's all based on the foundation of truth. And the Father showed me that this morning. Mm. Amen. Mm. Amen. Wonderful. Anyone else? So I feel like the words that were shared before, before we read Psalm 119 very much line up with what the message is about today. Um, you know, last week we spoke about what, about how God gives us life through His commandments because they give us a revelation of who He is and they give us a path on which to walk to come into greater depths of a relationship with Him and such that we can be conformed into the image of Yeshua, right? And God, and we, we spoke last week of God saving His people for a purpose and He gave them these commandments for life and that the Yeshua is the goal of the Torah, right? The Torah leads us to know Yeshua. The Torah leads us to become like Yeshua and to draw us into an experiential relationship with the Father because we get to live out the character and nature of Himself that He's revealed to us through it. And this week, we continue on into Mishpatim, 
where we have a, a Torah portion that is just filled with a lot of commandments. And it's a lot of commandments that almost seem anticlimactic compared to what we've just been at, right? We saw uh, God's presence come down on the mountain and he spoke the ten words and he had fire and he had thunders. And then we begin to go into uh, laws commanding Jewish slaves. And it's kind of like, okay, we're going we're gonna to slow down a little bit. We're going to ratchet down, right? But the thing is that... Um, it's, it's not really a ratcheting down. It's, it's really God saying that this revelation of, of my character and nature is going to come into every part of your life and your being. I want it not just to be what you do when you come before me at my altar, but I want it to be what you do in your homes. I want it to be in what you do in your business, what you do in your interpersonal relationships. It'll cover every aspect. And that's what we talked about some last week as well, about how Yeshua spoke of the greatest commandments being to love God and love your neighbor, right? And how within the two tablets, the first five commandments and the second five, com uh, second five commandments of the ten, how they talked with our vertical relationships and our horizontal relationships and how God wants those to um, reflect His love and His kindness and His respect for people. And then with the aspect of, you know, Paul mentioning that a lot of people see God as a tyrant or uh, I've heard other people say it like he's walking around with a bat just waiting for you to get out of line so he can whack you, right? It's like, well, no, that's, that's, not, that's not the God we serve. But oftentimes uh, it is our own experiences in life affect our view of who God is and sometimes it's the theology that we've been taught growing up about uh, the difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament right whereas really the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is one and the same his nature his character has never changed from the beginning to the end nor will it um, and so in some of these aspects as we come to say, how can I really relate to this God? We have to have our minds renewed, our, our thoughts renewed, our hearts renewed, so that we can really come in and feel His embrace. So, that's kind of the lead in here. I think one of the, one of the things with this is we do need a fear of the Lord, right? Not a fear as in he's walking around with the bat ready to smack us, but a fear and a reverence of this holy, mighty, awesome God who is worthy of all our praise, as we sang earlier, who is so holy that if we were to stand in his presence, we would be obliterated because of our own lack, because of our own fallen nature. But who makes a way for us to come as close as possible to him and to be transformed and prepared for a day in which His presence will dwell among us, not only within us, right? We have His Spirit within us, but then also His presence is going to be here on the earth to a greater degree than we can imagine. And so He's preparing us, making us into those who can walk ever closer to Him. And that's what He was really doing with the children of Israel when He took them out of Egypt to take them as His own people. He brought them through the wilderness on the way to Mount Sinai, preparing them along the way, testing them to see if they would keep His commands. And He was preparing them to be His bride. And so last week He came down on the mountain in fire and spoke the Ten Commandments. And, and the people trembled when they saw His majesty there on the mountain. And, and they asked Moses to, to speak for Him. Right, they said, <laughs> we're going to be wiped out if we continue to hear the Lord. And so they, they had a reverential fear for God that God saw as being a good thing. And so if, uh, let's go ahead and look at a few verses from that. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Okay, so the, 
the Ten Commandments have just been stated. They were written here in the passage. And in verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now think about this. God has brought a people out of slavery, set them free from their oppressors in this world so that he could take them as his own people. And as he brings them to the mountain, Moses says, Do not fear, God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you. It's not a, God's not desiring a fear that will cause them to run and hide from his presence, but rather to recognize who he is as their deliverer, as the one who is mighty, awesome, and holy, but also as a husband to a bride. Right? And it's like, well, can you be both? Can, can a, and and uh, think about it in human terms, right? Can, can a father be feared by his children, but also have his children come close to him? And, and he loved them and they know his love? And the answer is yes. There's a little bit of a balance that has to happen there, right? But the, the fear of the parent should not be one of, uh, they're going to harm me. But that when I, if I step out of line, then I know I'm going to receive correction. Or even just that this one is greater than I, right? And I can learn from this one. I'm called to become like this one. And so, so Moses is saying, don't fear, but fear. Because <laughs> you, you saw that, right? He said, do not fear. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. It's, it, there's two different kinds of fear. Do not fear drawing near, but still have awe and reverence for him. And, and so the people ask Moses to stand in their place. And then in Deuteronomy 5, we see the same thing happening. Uh, Moses is retelling the story to the children of Israel as his days are drawing near to an end and the children of Israel are getting ready to go forward into the promised land. He's reminding them of the covenant and where they, where they had been before. And he says here in Deuteronomy 5.22, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. Now, what I didn't say here is, again, in this case, he has just finished restating what the Ten Commandments were. And he says, these words you heard at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fires we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And when we hear it, and, and we will hear it and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, Return to your tents, but you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You should be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So God said that their heart attitude in asking Moses to hear for them and convey what are the commands that God has 
was a good thing because it was out of reverence for the Lord that they were asking for this thing. And he said that it was one of the elements that would help them to walk faithfully before him, that it would go well for them, right? To both maintain this fear of the Lord and to walk in his ways would be life and for their benefit and for their good, such that they could actually receive what God wanted to pour out on them. And really, so when we come into Mishpatim this week and we're reading all these other commandments, this is essentially what God was talking about here in, in Deuteronomy when he said, Tell them to return to your tents, to their tents, and I will tell you the whole commandment, statutes, and rules that you shall teach them. Right. And so there's a, a few things just kind of staying back here with the fear of the Lord being for our good. If we look in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the fear of the Lord being connected to coming to know Him and knowing him, you know, last week we, we talked about in John 17, 3, how Yeshua says that this is eternal life, that they will know you, the one true God and the Messiah whom you've sent, right? So life is knowing God and having a reverential fear of the Lord produces an environment that allows us to come to know him all the more. In Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. One more in Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Right? So in each of these cases, like in this last one, I think it highlights it quite a bit, of the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And that one may turn away from the snares of death. Because when we have this fear of the Lord, this holy reverence for him, then we seek to walk according to his ways, and his ways are life that lead us from the path of death. All right. Now, I feel like a second part of the fear of the Lord is it, it, you know, it leads to life and to faithfulness to him in keeping of his commands and, and uh, walking by the Torah. And when Paul mentioned people not seeing God as a loving, caring father, I mentioned that one of the problems is sometimes the theology that we've had about an Old Testament God versus New Testament God, and how um, oftentimes it's taught that you had the law, but now you have grace. You had, um, you had works, but now you have faith, right? And that becomes a foundation for thinking um, that, that the Torah is actually something that does not impart life, but that rather... Um, was used as a method in order to teach people that they were in need of grace, that they never could earn their salvation. I don't know if y'all have ever heard that, um, it put that way before, but it's a pretty common teaching that, um, that the Torah was given so that man would know their sinfulness and their need for grace. I, sound, I soundly reject that theory. Primarily, if we just look at what's happening at Sinai, with God taking a people unto himself as a bride, right? He takes a people to himself as a bride and says, I'm giving you these commands that are for your good. This is the Torah by which you'll walk. Now, I don't know how many of you think a good husband gives his wife something that she can never attain so that he can beat her down to show her how much she needs his love and grace. That is not a good marriage. <laughs> it's not a good marriage. Instead, what it is, okay, so... You know, I made that a, a simple uh, statement there, but I think it's important for us to understand really the place that, that Torah takes within the relationship that we have with God and the covenant that we have with God. So, and I know I've said this many times before, so you get to hear it again, but a, a covenant exists between two parties in order to protect a relationship that is worth keeping. 
So people enter into a covenant with one another because there's something of value that's worth keeping. And then within that agreement of we're going to, we're going to uphold this relationship, you say, well, how do we uphold the relationship? You uphold the relationship through the vows of the covenant. Right? When a man and a woman become married, they, they make vows and promises unto one another of how they will love and support and take care of each other. Now, the vows they make don't create the relationship. They protect the relationship. Right? And so in the same way, God says, I want a relationship with you. And, now we, and then we, in response, say, well, I want a relationship with you too. Okay, well, then we enter into covenant with God. And we say, this relationship is worth keeping. It matters to me. It matters to you. Now, how do we do this? Now, of course, with, when relating to God, it's not as a man and a woman relating to one another, but it's, it's, a, it's a sovereign and it's a subject. And so the sovereign promises to give you protection, provision, and you, in turn, promise to serve the sovereign faithfully. And so within this, this, this is the aspect of the Torah. It serves as the means by which the relationship is protected and even deepened and enriched. And God says within this, it isn't just about me and you. It is about me and you, but it's also about you and each other. Because God wants the whole people as a bride, not just an individual as a bride. And he says, I love all my people. And if I love all my people, then my people need to love each other too because my image is in them. And they too are my bride just as any other individual is. And so that's part of the reason why we have this, this dual aspect of what are our obligations vertically with those who are above us and what are our obligations with those who are our peers, the horizontal relationships. And what I was drawn to this morning, you know, I was thinking along the lines of how God gives us, com us His commands to walk in them, that we might have deeper relationship with Him, that we might have life, that it might go well for, for us. And a verse that often comes to mind is from Romans 10, verse 4, where the scripture says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. And this is really a great passage. It's one that causes confusion at times, but it's one that's important to understand. It causes confusion because of the way in which it's translated. Right? If we see, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone believes, and we couple this with the idea that everything is grace and faith and that the, the law and works don't matter, then we can, we can make a conclusion that Christ ended the law for righteousness and now righteousness comes by faith. Okay, but just to clarify too, righteousness does come from faith. But if, we tr if, we, if we're taking the approach of dividing between Torah and faithfulness versus just faith and belief, then we get into trouble. So this word end with the end of the law, it's the end goal. It's about what is the destination. So Messiah is the destination, the goal of the Torah for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ is what the Torah leads us to, to become, to become like, to become like the Messiah. And when I read this in, in further context, I saw a few things that are tied to really what we need to understand about the commandments and the life that comes from them. In fact, before we go into all of that, I'm going to read a couple other verses because these are going to tie into it. So let's look at um, Leviticus 18.5. Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall observe my decrees and my laws, which man shall carry out, and by which he shall live. Okay. Sorry. I don't know how to work an iPad. I've messed it up. Hang on. I'm back. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I keep pushing buttons. Eventually it's going to work itself out. Okay, so 
from this passage, the sages derive that the commandments were given for the sake of life, not for the sake of death. Because he says, you shall keep my words, and if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And then in Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, Moses says, For this is the commandment that I command you, to, that I com this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And so, you know, again, this also tying into the Torah and the commands were not given to prove that we couldn't do them or to bring death. They were to further a deeper relationship and knowledge of God such that we could walk in life, such that we could walk in the promises that he's given. And God encourages his people and says, it's not too hard for you. Now, is it too hard for you to live perfectly such that you can have everlasting life without the need for Yeshua or God's atonement? Well, yeah, absolutely. It's way impossible for you to do that. But God's looking at how do you live with me now in this day and in the world to come, and that's not too hard for you because I've made the way for you. Even at this time when the children of Israel were walking in the wilderness because salvation has always been by grace through faith. From the very beginning, it's always been by God's mercy, His kindness, His grace to bring people into life through knowing Him. And for an illustration of that, um, oh, you can, okay. Yeah, for an, for an illustration of that, when God redeemed the children of Israel from Egypt, they had not merited redemption from Egypt. Right? But He saved them. He took them out and brought them to Himself and gave them life. What were you going to say, Paul? I was going to say John 14 always helped me. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, and so what he, His desire is for us to walk in, in faith and faithfulness to the covenant so that we can have life, so we can have restoration. And what, what stood out to me today, you know, sometimes we'll read in the scriptures uh, translations that maybe lead us in the wrong path or help make a divide for us that really shouldn't be there. And what struck me this morning was reading here in Romans 10, verse 11, or 1 through 11, the scripture says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking of the children of Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. It says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now what's interesting in here is when we come to verse 6 and he says, but the righteousness based on faith says X. Anytime you see the word but come in, it's almost like, hang on, we need to change gears. Does that make sense? Because it says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live to them. But the righteousness based on faith says this other thing. But the, the word but here uh, doesn't have to be translated but. It can be and. Okay, and that's really what it should be uh, when we're reading these is Moses 
writes about the righteousness is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them, and the righteousness faith on faith says, who will, ascend in, who will ascend into heaven, and the word is near you and in your heart. Okay? It's both. It, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a both and. It's not a one, uh, no, but it's really this other way. It should be the two working together. In fact, when we read here, when he says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, and it goes on to say, the word is near you and in your mouth, that's just what we read in Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 30, is Moses saying to keep all the commandments and it's not too hard for you. Don't say who will ascend. It's very near to you in your heart and in your mouth. So it was Moses who was saying that you will live by keeping the commandments and it's not too hard for you. It's, it's faith, faith and faithfulness to the Torah working together, not one or the other. It's not grace versus law. It's grace and law. And Paul, did you Okay, yeah, so, so two, uh, two aspects of righteousness that are distinct but not contradictory. So you're saying righteousness that comes from following the Torah and righteousness that comes through faith? Yeah, yeah and, and they're not at odds with one another. Yeah, yeah and you know, um, one of the things that helps to give a little clarity on this passage <clears throat> is actually what precedes it. So chapter 10 is following up on comments that Paul is making with regard to Israel not recognizing where their righteousness comes from. Okay? And if we were to look at um, Romans 9, 31, or let's see, 30 through 32, he says... The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, but they've attained it. That is a righteousness based on faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, and they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so when we, when we read this, we ask the question of, wait a minute, what's faith and what's works here that he's talking about? And to understand what he means by pursuing it by faith versus works, we actually have to back up to the beginning of Romans chapter 9, which lays the whole framework for it. Um, I'm not going to read all of this, but he's speaking about Israel and their, and their special calling. And what he says is that even though they've been given all these... Actually, I'll go ahead and read it. I've just changed my mind. <laughs> I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the, the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Right, so it's like, look what they've been given. Right? But now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are, are, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Okay, so this is... This last thing is verse 8 when it says that not the children of the flesh who are children of God. That's talking about works. And then the children of promise, that's faith. This, this is where the definitions of faith and works are coming in. The, the children of the promise are counted as offspring because it was the promise received by faith that Abraham had. That his offspring would come forth. So there's the faith, the trust in God and Him to bring forth children of God and Him to give all that's needed. And the opposite is trusting in works, which is the children who are of the flesh. Now why do I say that the works are the children of the flesh? It's because it's the works of human hands that circumcise and make one 
in part of the covenant with God by descent. Okay? And there, so there's this distinction between legal identity as a descendant of Abraham versus identity as a descendant of Abraham through faith, through the promise. And so that's what Paul is speaking of, saying that Israel pursued, Israel pursued, didn't pursue it by faith according to the promise, knowing that it was people who would be trusting in God for all that they need, who would be the true offspring versus those who said, you know what, I'm a descendant of Abraham, therefore I am part of the covenant and in right standing with God. And this is what John uh, the Baptist warns when he says the axe is already laid at the trees. Do not say you have Abra Do not say for yourselves that you have Abraham as your father. Right? But that God is looking for those who are living by faith. So the issue here is the stumbling block was the trust in the works of human hands in the aspect of being like, I am a physical descendant, therefore I'm okay. Everyone else is not okay. As opposed to the faith through the promise and how God chose a people unto himself. So the works we're talking about there is not works of being faithful to walk in the commandments. It's trusting in man and his ability as opposed to God and his provision. So anyway, I guess that was a long way of kind of coming about and saying it's really faith in God and Torah working together that help us to walk along this path of knowing God and experiencing Him in this life and in this world. And so when we come into this week's portion and we're reading through all these commands and we're going through a long list of commands this week. We start out with commands regarding those who are sold as slaves and then we go into issues of murder and manslaughter. Uh, bodily injuries and animals that are causing injury and so forth. And we start to say, wow, is this, is this giving us life? Right? What do we make of all these commands? But embedded within these commands is God's desire to allow people to walk in freedom. Freedom from um, even, even from monetary loss and poverty, freedom from um, freedom really for, even from their past. Uh, unfortunately, I can't go into a lot of detail on this, but there are multiple connections in the commands given in this week's portion that through the language the Torah uses ties the commands back to stories from Genesis to where embedded within the command it's addressing Israel's past failures or the failures of the patriarchs and how they treated one another and how uh, like for example when it talks about one who kidnaps a man and sells him okay there's illusions that are going to point back to the sale of Joseph okay when it talks about one who um, acts intentionally against his fellow to murder him versus one who accidentally kills and has a place to flee to. That's hearkening back to Jacob and Esau. Okay? And it's not just in like a high-level concept of, oh, okay, I see that Esau was lying in wait to, to kill Jacob, saying, okay, well, after my father dies, I'm going to kill him. And that Jacob got to flee somewhere after he had stolen from his brother, taken his firstbornness in a way killing off his brother's firstborn status, but he had a place to flee. But even the words that are used, the, the very verbs and nouns that are used are the same ones that are used back in the story of Jacob and Esau, such that the Torah is giving us a map pointing back and connecting them, saying it's not just the concept, but it's the very words that are going to help you show you that God is giving commands that will show us how we can even, how we can avoid the pitfalls of the past, right? I think one of the, one of the stories that was most impactful that I heard on this week's, uh, on this week's portion had to do with the sale of a daughter. 
If we read in Exodus 21, verse 7, the scripture says, If a man will sell his daughter as a bondswoman, she shall not leave like the leave-taking of the slaves. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master, who should have designated her for himself, he shall assist in her redemption. He shall not have the power to sell her to a strange man, for he had betrayed her. If he had designated her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the rights of the young women. And if he shall take another in addition to her, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital relationship. If he does not perform these three for her, she shall leave free of charge without payment. Now, we read this passage, and even the passage before it, talking about um, a male being sold as a slave. And, you know, our first thing is to kind of step back and say, slavery is not a good thing, right? So what's it doing here in the Torah? And what is God doing? What's he addressing? And in both cases, for both the Jewish bondservant who's sold and for even this daughter here, God is giving a pathway to restoration that these people otherwise would not have if these provisions were not given. So for a person to be sold as a slave, they either had to come to a point of being so impoverished that they had no hope otherwise, or sometimes it's for a thief as well, if they are unable to pay back what they had stolen. Then, then they would be sold as a, a, a slave to pay off their debt, but yet they would go free after six years or in the Jubilee year. Okay? So it was not a permanent servitude. It was one that was intended to bring restoration to the one who had suffered loss in some degree. In fact, when, when the slave owner would send off the slave, God's command is that they will give them gifts and blessings and they will do it willingly and, and with joy because they're sending this person out on a new life with provision, with a skill set to live by and with provision to go and start afresh. So they had so been come to a place of being so impoverished that they had to be sold, so degraded, but now they're leaving with a skill and blessings to go forward. That's redemptive, right? That's not punitive. And then with the case of a man selling his daughter, that does not sound good, right? But one of the key things here that's mentioned is he says, when a, woman, when a man sells his daughter, she shall not leave like the leave-taking of the slaves. So, yes, she would be freed after six years of, of uh, servitude. But there's a different thing that's taking place with the sale of a daughter. Because here in the passage, it talks about how the master would either marry her or marry her to one of his children. And if he didn't do that, then he had to sell her back to the father or release her such that she goes free. And so then you have to ask the question, well, why would the daughter be sold to someone else in the first place? And in one way, the way it worked is that it was the path out of poverty for the girl. Okay? So a poor man has a daughter who he can't give a dowry for to marry someone. So what's he going to do? Well, there's a rich person who will buy her and she'll serve with the ultimate goal of now becoming a part of that family. So she moves out of a status of being poor into one of having abundance. And, and just one moment. And, and so she either becomes the bride of the person who is of, who has wealth, and no matter what the future holds, he has to treat her as a bride the entire time. It can't just be, okay, I took you as a bride out of, out of graciousness, but you're just kind of over there. Why don't you just go cook and clean and do whatever? No, you've got to give, the, you don't diminish food, clothing, or marital relationship, full status as a bride. And then if you don't take her, but give her to your son, you have to treat her as a daughter. It's not a second-class citizen. So there's a, there's a transfer out of one class into another, and so it's actually, again, restorative and uplifting. What was it, Diego? In, in modern times, we, we do that even to this day. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, and there, so, yeah, it's very much covers all time, applicable then, applicable today, and, um, you know, just in speaking of these aspects of the restorative nature of the commands, it made me think about one of the commands that's often misunderstood, and, uh, is that a, that's not a question, okay, um, but I do want to touch on it. So if we look at Exodus 21, 22, the scripture says, If men shall fight and they shall collide with a pregnant woman and she miscarries, but there will be no fatality, meaning that the woman doesn't die, he shall surely be punished as the husband of the woman shall cause to be assessed against him, and he shall pay it by order of judges. But if there shall be a fatality, then you shall award a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, and a bruise for a bruise. This passage right here very much contributes to the idea of a vengeful God because it's often misunderstood of what the command here is. Now, if we look at what the sages have said throughout time, is that this was never intended to be the case that you would gouge out someone's eye because they caused someone else to lose an eye or that you would knock out someone's tooth because they caused someone else to lose a tooth. But rather, it's a monetary payment for what is lost. So the, the life for a life, this is a monetary payment for a value of a life, monetary payment for an eye for an eye. And, and part of what helps to bring this understanding is the actual words that were used here in the Torah. The verses preceding this talk about many cases in which the penalty for what someone had done is putting someone to death, right? Actually saying, you shall put them to death. But in this case, it says, you shall, you shall, give, you shall give a life in place of a life an eye in place of an eye, a tooth in place of a tooth. It does not say you shall, you shall kill the life. Instead, it's you're giving something in place of the other. And so an illustration here would be if you had um, a pianist, right? They make their, their living playing the piano and you cause them to lose the benefit of their hand, Right? So say something happens that you must go all the way. You cause their hand to be chopped off. The court doesn't say, okay, we're chopping your hand off too and that's going to make everything right. That doesn't make everything right. The person still has lost all their livelihood and now you have two people maimed instead of one. Right? And that's destructive. Instead, God says that person lost the use of their hand. What was the monetary value of their hand? that's what you're going to pay because the, that payment in some way restores what you cause them to lose. Okay, so the command here is one that's restorative as opposed to destructive. How much money did you make playing the piano? Yeah, how much money did you make making, playing the piano? That becomes the restitution. It's a matter of proportionality in assessing a yeah, it's a measure-for-measure measure aspect of what is going to bring forth restoration, what is going to bring righteousness and justice. And speaking of the righteousness and justice, I need, I need to wrap up here. But this is a key aspect. You know, when we're going through the commands and looking at them, the commands are establishing righteousness and justice, standards of righteousness and justice. And God's throne is founded upon those two principles. In, in Psalm 89, 14 through 16, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name, they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness, they are exalted. So God is giving commands that are going to establish what is righteousness and justice such that the people can then walk in restoration. Because how many of you know we need multiple levels of restoration as we walk along this path? Right? We come to a knowledge of who God is, we begin to learn who He is and walk in His ways, begin to experience the love of the Father. Not everything's fixed instantaneously. 
we have a path whereby we walk out this salvation, where we walk out this understanding of what is righteousness and justice and what does it look like in my life. And so we look within the Torah, within, within what God has written in the Torah and what He has done in the life of Yeshua, and we say, what does this righteousness look like? How do I then walk in this righteousness and in this justice? And how do I make it, how do I protect it so that I do not uh, lose sight? There was another passage in here. Um, I can't remember where it is, but it talks about how you shall not take a bribe, for a, a bribe will blind the eyes of the wise. Right? It says it will blind the eyes of the wise. Not the wise, it won't blind the eyes of the corrupt, of the evil, but of the wise. Right? So even that, there's a safeguard. You can't say, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to allow this to happen because I'm not going to let it influence me. And once you do that, you say, okay, I've, I've abandoned wisdom. <laughs> Instead, you say, you know what? If the Lord says, do not engage in these activities, I'm not going to engage in them because, one, it's unfaithful to Him, and then, two, I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm not as strong as I think I am. Um, But God, but God, ultimately, He's calling us to approach Him with a reverence and an awe, to walk in righteousness and justice as He's revealed it to us, to walk out our relationship with Him with faithfulness in trusting Him and in faithfulness to the covenant that will support and uphold that relationship so we can go grow deeper and deeper to him in in life with him and that we can receive what he's desiring to bring us into because even as the children of israel were getting ready to go into into take hold of the promises they renewed the covenant right when they were on the shore of the jordan and they were getting ready to cross over joshua had all the all the children of israel circumcise themselves so they could get ready to go over they said we're going to walk in faithfulness to the covenant as one people now let's go in and inherit the promises and so when god says I have plans and purposes in your life. I've saved you for a purpose and called you to go forth. Now, for you to have success and life in that, you need to come and seek me and what are my standards of, of righteousness, of justice, and apply them in your life so that it will go well for you and so that I can pour out the blessings and you will live long in the goodness that I desire to pour out on you as your loving Father. Amen. Um, Jared's going to come up and talk about the upcoming month. And so before he does that, though, let me say a quick prayer. Lord, we thank you for your righteousness, for your goodness. We thank you that you're a loving Father who has brought us into relationship with you, who's given us a revelation of who you are for the very purpose of causing us to become conformed to the image of your Son, that we can know you better, that we can love you, serve you, live for you, and love one another well along the way. I ask, Lord, that your word would become alive in us. Lord, that we would not put our trust in ourselves, that we would put our trust wholly in you, and that we would know that every good and perfect gift comes from above, and that we walk by your goodness, by your provision, by your grace and love. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Yeshua. Amen. All right, we are celebrating. This is the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah. And uh, usually, uh, tradition has it, the role of the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah is to remind you that a, uh, a new moon is coming and to keep in the forefront the, uh, the celebration of the new moon. So this uh, Adar starts on Tuesday night, February the 21st. Um, it is the 12th month of the biblical calendar. So it's the last month. And then it's the sixth month of the civil calendar of 5783. Um, the Talmud tells us that when the month of Adar arrives, we increase in joy. Uh, so it is a welcomed season of miracles. Uh, so the meaning of Adar, so the origin of the name Adar comes from the Babylonian name Adaru, which literally means cutting grain. So even though the names of the month are Babylonian or Akkadian in origin, the sages also interpret and explain that some of these names are similar to other Hebrew names that have a very similar meaning. So in Hebrew, 
The name Adar comes from, from the word Adir, A-D-I-R, which means strong, firm, noble, or certain. So the name of the month is also associated with happiness, blessings, and rejoicing. Uh, so the blessing of this month, we go through a lot of other themes, I guess, for this month. So the blessing of the month of Adar is joy. Um, the area of healing in this month is your identity. Uh, and some of the actions needed for this month is to look for hidden resources and see God working in your circumstances. Um, you'll see and notice that we're about to celebrate the month, uh, not the month, the uh, celebrate Purim uh, in the month of Adar. Uh, and so that theme of Esther is prevalent all throughout this month. Um, the spiritual warfare this month is to use laughter as a weapon. So try to find something that makes you laugh, something that brings you joy, and use that as a weapon against the enemy. Um, some of the values for this month, uh, the, or uh, should we say midot, or character development, is charity, temperance, and joy. There it is, joy again. And some of the themes for this month is overcoming, trading sorrow for joy, giving to the poor, happiness, and strength. Uh, and the feast or holidays for this month is Purim. Purim, Purim, tomato, tomato, I'm not sure. I'll find out when uh, Chris talks about it here soon. All right. So some notable dates in the month of Adar. Uh, on the 7th of Adar is believed to have been the birth and the death of Moses. Um, and the 14th and 15th is Purim. And so during that um, feast, we have four common activities. Um, one is to listen to the public reading, often in the synagogue, of the book of Esther. Um, another is to send a gift of food to at least one friend, um, giving charity to the poor, and eating a festive meal. So make sure you wrote that down and then check those boxes off as we celebrate Purim. Um, Adar was the last month that the Jewish people spent in Egypt before the Exodus. So Adar's joy is so great, in part, because it serves as the opening to an even greater rejoicing, the miracles of Passover. So in the same manner, but to a lesser degree, that the month of Elul is used to prepare our hearts for the feast of Tishri, or the, um, all the fall feast, Adar, in the same way, in the same manner, is a, a, a way to prepare your hearts and increase in joy for the spring feasts. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the preparation of celebrating Purim, the book of Esther, and which we'll do that here in a couple, uh, two and a half weeks or so. And that is a theme of miracles. Uh, and so, and we'll see the theme of miracles coming in the month of Nisan uh, next month. So the ability to see and experience hidden miracles in our lives is another theme this month. It is a month where hidden things will be revealed and our eyes will be opened to where we see that God was in control and that he was involved. So just as in the book of Esther, God was entirely central to the whole story, yet his name was never mentioned. And from a personal level, what is, what is hidden in you that needs to be revealed? And that is something that we discuss and ponder in the month of Adar. So a quote from Dr. Wayne Dyer says this, Don't die with your music still in you. We all have come here with a unique gift to offer the world. And if we keep it hidden within us, then it's the world that misses out on our gift. And we might lose out on fulfilling our purpose. So sometimes we have to harness the courage of Esther to activate those hidden gifts inside of us. So it is also interesting to note that for the happy month of Adar, we increase our joy. And for the sad month of Av, we decrease our joy, which means that we always live from a perspective of joy. So this is the month of Adar. So I'll say the prayer and then Chris will come back up. So may it be your will, Lord our God and God of our fathers, that you begin for us this month for good and for blessing. May you give to us long life, a life of peace, a life of goodness, a life of blessing, 
a life of sustenance, a life of physical health, a life in which there is reverence of heaven and dread of sin, a life in which there is no shame or humiliation, a life of wealth and honor, a life in which we love Torah and fear God, a life in which the, love, the Lord fulfills all our heart's desires for good. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.